If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 25 this morning. If you're on the Pew Bible, that's found on page 916. And I'm going to start off, just get a warning before I start. This is a, a difficult passage, and this is going to be a difficult sermon. And I'm sure before the end, I'm going to wind up offending everyone in this room, because I've offended myself. Uh, this passage really convicted me, and I, I think it, it was difficult writing this sermon, because it was, again, I'm looking at myself, and I say, I don't, I don't stand up to what I'm preaching. And again, I'm going to probably offend most people in this room, but that's kind of what the Lord called me to do. Um, just as a start to give a little background, we're starting in, in uh, chapter 8, is, is the beginning of a new section in the book of Acts. Remember the, the verse I quote in every sermon, Acts 1.8, the theme verse of Acts, where he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And not only is this a theme verse, not only is this a charge given to every Christian, in addition to being a charge, this is actually the outline of the book of Acts itself. So the first seven chapters, we saw the church being Christ's witness in Jerusalem. And then last week, we saw because of the, the martyrdom of Stephen, because of the intense persecution from Saul, we saw the disciples fled Jerusalem and began proclaiming the gospel in Judea and Samaria. So this is the second section in the book of Acts. In this chapter, we see the evangelism of Philip, who was one of the first deacons chosen by the church, and he is now witnessing in Samaria. And it's really important for us to understand that during the time of Jesus and, during the, and in the book of Acts, that there was much hostility between the Jews in Jerusalem and the Samaritans in Samaria. This is actually a major point in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. And this hostility goes way back. It goes back a thousand years to Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And there was a split of God's people into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom of Israel had its capital in Samaria. The southern kingdom of Judah had its capital in Jerusalem. And if you know anything about biblical history, you know the northern kingdom immediately became apostate. They went bad immediately. You know, when you read through the book of, of Kings, you read through the, the kings of Judah, they'll have a good king that followed after David and a bad king who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But in the northern kingdom, they only did evil. It was only bad kings. They were apostate from the beginning. And to make matters worse, when the, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, the Jewish people who lived there, many of them were taken by the Assyrians out. They were taken exile out of the land, and foreigners had been forced to settle in the promised land. And these foreigners, they intermarried with the Jews who remained there, and they produced descendants who, according to the Jews in Jerusalem, were considered both religiously and ethnically corrupt. So you see, there's a lot of barriers there. Well, today we're going to look at one man in particular in Samaria, a man who heard and responded to the preaching of Philip. Uh, this man was even baptized, and this man's name is Simon, and you may know him. He's, he's known as Simon the Magician, or Simon the Sorcerer, or Simon Magus. And we're going to learn a lot about ourselves in this character of Simon. So Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 25, hear now the word of the Lord. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, 
and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do need your spirit. Lord, I pray that you'll be with us. As we look at this, this passage, and this is a difficult passage, it's a convicting passage. We see in Simon something that we want to dismiss. We want to say that Simon's an unbeliever, that we would never do anything like that. But the truth is, every one of us, myself included, do this all the time. So I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will, will guide my words and you, know, you use these words to help us to examine ourselves and to repent, to repent where we use you as a means to an end, where we don't worship you, we don't value you for who you are. Lord, we need you to open our eyes and open our hearts to hear from you. We pray that you're glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may have heard the, the, the saying that, that money is a great servant but a, a terrible master. And it's true. It's true. Money is, is a great tool. It's a tool to enable us to do other things, to do amazing things. It's a tool that can help us to, to help other people. It can allow us to build great things. It can allow us to serve others. It can allow us to improve our society. Ultimately, our money can be used to glorify God. Money is a means to an end. It's a, a means to a higher end, a means to a nobler end. But if you make money your master... If having money and making money is your sole purpose in life, if all your energy goes to making more, to having more, what you'll find is you'll destroy all the good things that make this life worth living. You'll destroy relationships. You'll destroy your family. You'll destroy your health. There are some people when they're young, they will spend all their time making money, hoarding money, only for when they're old to spend all their money just so that they can get a little bit more time in this world. The pursuit of money alone just leads to a meaningless existence. Money is a, a great servant, but a terrible master. Now, God, on the other hand, God, on the other hand, he is the perfect master. He is the highest end. He is the most noble purpose in all creation. And my friends, he won't allow himself. He will not allow himself to be used as a servant to anyone. God is the ultimate end. He's not a means to any other end. No matter how high, no matter how good 
that could be in itself. There is no end higher than God himself. But sadly, what we see is many people, even many Christians, do just that. They use God as a means to an end. They seek to use God as a means to get something else. There's something that we desire more than God. And this is exactly what we see in Simon the Sorcerer. See, Simon's an ambiguous character. And I think Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, intended it this way. See, many people will ask, the first question you ask is, did Simon truly believe? That's what it says in verse 13. Was Simon saved? And if not, if Simon wasn't saved, does this negate the doctrine of justification by faith alone? And I actually had a pastor from a non-Trinitarian heretical group who said just this to me. He said, Simon believed, and Simon's not saved. So you're not saved. You're not justified by faith alone. Now, if you know church tradition, Simon's not thought well of in church tradition. He's not seen in a positive light. Very few believe that he was actually a true believer. And tradition says that he was actually a Gnostic leader that, that opposed uh, Paul, uh, opposed Peter, and opposed Orthodox Christianity. But I think we ask the wrong question if we get hung up of whether Simon was a believer or not. That's not the question we should ask. I think the question we should ask is, what can I learn from Simon? You see, if we dismiss Simon as an unbeliever, all right, we could say that the warning doesn't apply to us. The application for, for Simon, if he's an unbeliever, is really only one. There's only one application of any sermon I preach for an unbeliever, and that is to come to Christ, to repent and believe the gospel. But in the unlikely event that Simon is maybe a believer, or more likely, if the sin that Simon commits is one that can be and, and often is committed by believers, then there's a warning to us here. There's a warning that we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss. So what's the warning? Well, the warning is simple. God is not a means to an end. God is not something that we use, use to get power, use to get wealth, use to get happiness, use to get freedom from addiction, use to get freedom from loneliness, or a good marriage, or a good family, or, or a good society, or our best life now. No. And these, things are, these are all good things, there's no doubt about it. And many of these things are a side benefit of having a right relationship with God. So your life centered on God will often, not always, but often have many, not all, but many of these good things in it. But if any of these things, if any of these things is a higher priority than God himself, then they become an idol. And what we're doing is we're simply using God as a means to an end. My friends, God alone is the highest end. We say solely Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. This is the chief end of man. The chief end of man, the ultimate purpose is to glorify God. That is the ultimate purpose, not only of man, but of all the creation, is to glorify God. Now, sadly, the, the, the vast majority of professing Christians treat God as a means to something else, as a means to a higher end. And, and my friends, this is a constant temptation that we all face. I know it's a temptation that I face. And what about worship? Think about worship. Uh, do we worship God for, for the excitement, the excitement that we have of a packed church and, and lively music, or the way we feel? At worship, or that the appearance of the, the Spirit is moving? Or do we worship God for who He is? Worship not for any external blessing, because He alone, He alone is the blessing. He alone is wor worthy of worship. What, what could someone give us other than God Himself? And that is what we get when we worship God. I had a seminary professor, uh, Doug Kelly, one of the most godly men I ever met. I remember he mentioned that one week he preached at a church to about a thousand people. The next week, very next week, he preached to 15. 
And he said God was every bit as present in the 15 as they were in the 1,000. And he said he prayed just as much, and he prepared just as much for the, for the small church as for the bigger church. What about prayer? Do we pray to, for God to give us the things we pray for? Or do we pray to get God? To, to have communion with him? What is, what is the highest goal of our prayers? Our highest goal is God. Now, God will answer our prayers. He does answer our prayers. He uses our prayers to accomplish his will. And our prayers do have value and do have impact and make an impact on the world. But the goal of our prayer is not to get the stuff. The prayer, goal of our prayer is to get God, to be in his will, to know his will. He is the highest end. So let's look at Simon. Let's look at him not as a wicked unbeliever, not as someone that, that we're so much better than. And this is really the way that I would look at it. I would dismiss Simon when I would look at it. But let's see ourselves in his wickedness. Let Simon's sin highlight our own sin so that we can recognize it and then we can repent of it. And this sermon, again, is going to be challenging to hear. It was, it was challenging for me to write. It's going to make us uncomfortable. And I know I was convicted when I was studying this passage. But know this. Know this, this reality. The Holy Spirit's conviction always brings life. It never brings condemnation. It is meant to draw us to repentance and give us freedom. Give us the great love in Christ. Give us the greater joy in him. So let's start in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So a couple of things to notice here about Simon. He practiced magic. The practice of magic was clearly condemned in the Old Testament. We heard this in our Old Testament reading from, from Deuteronomy 18. We see this in other passages in Leviticus as well. So what is magic? Well, magic is an attempt to manipulate nature, to manipulate the physical world, to manipulate others for our own gain. And magic is, is frequently done through deception, through trickery. But there's also demonic forces that is involved in, in, in magic. It is a way for us to gain power. And, and, and here's the key to it. It's a way for us to gain power without God, without relying on God. It's a way for us to be independent from God. It's a way for us to be autonomous. Literally means a law unto ourselves. And mediums and necromancers and fortune tellers, these were the ways that, that the magic was practiced. And this type of magic was common in the pagan world. And it was condemned in Scripture, as we just heard, read in our Old Testament reading. It was evil. And it should never even be mentioned among God's people. But sadly, it was. And the same type of magic is practiced today. And some we might use different terminology. Some may not even. They're actually modern-day pagans. People who practice Wiccan, practice, practice nature religions. There's people in the occult, and they seek power. And I believe that they do have some measure of power that comes from the demonic realm. It's a demonic power that they are tapping into. There are those who seek spiritual power through, through the New Age or, or the use of crystals or spirit guides or angels or even perverted understanding of Christianity. There's Eastern religious practices such as yoga and martial arts. And people do receive real power and real peace through these practices but they are explicitly opposed by God's word. Now, people will say, these things work. They make me feel better. They give me more peace. How could they be wrong? My friends, of course they work. Of course they have power. 
But the question is, where does the power come from? And what it is, is this power makes them so seductive. If they, if they were useless, they wouldn't be seductive. They wouldn't be dangerous. And they are wrong because they seek autonomous power. They are wrong because they seek to sever our, us from our dependence on God. They are wrong because they draw us away from God and reliance on him to reliance on ourselves and reliance on something other than God, which is usually demonic powers, which will enslave us. And I'm sure most of us here don't practice nature religions or Wiccan or pagans or Eastern religions or involved in the occult or New Age. But there's another aspect of magic, another aspect of magic in our society that I think it's very easy for all of us to fall prey to, unwillingly fall prey to, and, and many of us have, and myself included. So what is the basic definition of magic? I said it's the manipulation of, of others or nature or the physical world in an attempt to be autonomous from God, an attempt not to need God. Well, what are some ways we do this today? What are some ways that we attempt to, to manipulate others or manipulate nature or manipulate the world? And we do this all the time. We do it through our understanding of science. We do this through our understanding of technology, our understanding of engineering. We use the resources of this physical world for our own purposes, for us to control this world. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that science and technology and engineering, I mean, I have degrees in engineering. I practiced engineering for, for many years. I'm not saying these are contemned uh, by God. Far from it. Actually, science is only possible because of a Christian worldview. See, the right use of science and technology, these are part of the creation mandate that is given to us by God to have dominion over his creation as his stewards. Not, not autonomous, but as his stewards, as his representatives in this world. And I think it's no accident that cultures most influenced by Christianity and the Bible have become the most technologically advanced. And unlike the practice of magic by the pagans and reference in the Old Testament relying on the occult and relying on demons, there are no commands in Scripture not to use technology. But the problem is not the use of science and technology. The problem is the, the temptation to use these gifts, gifts of God's common grace. That means he's, he's, it's given to everyone. It's given to believers and unbelievers. And the sin is when we use these gifts in a way that reinforces the myth, the myth of our personal autonomy. The myth that we are somehow apart from God, that we are not dependent on God, that we do not need to submit to God. That's the danger. And even for believers, even for many of us in this room, even for myself included, there is a real temptation for us to, to trust our technology. I mean, think about it. I'm this morning, just driving to church. I get in my car. I just trust that I'm going to get here. I don't pray and say, I know that if God's will, I wouldn't even, that car wouldn't start or that car would get into an accident. We, we trust in these things. We trust in our science. We trust in our medicine. Oftentimes, we don't come to prayer until we've exhausted all the, the medical, all the scientific things. We trust in, in these things rather than trusting in the sovereign triune God of the universe. And my friends, the, son, the sin is subtle. Because one person may use technology fully seeing it as a blessing from God, seeing it as a means for God to accomplish his will. While another person may outwardly do the exact same thing, but doing it as a, a sinful way, promoting his own autonomy, his own and seeking to be independent from God. It's the same thing. But the heart is so different. It's diametrically opposed. So look at the reason Simon did magic. Look at the result of his, his, of his work. Second part of the verse says that Simon himself was saying that he was somebody great. 
Simon was promoting himself. He was seeking his own glory. And don't we all do this? This is the motivation for all Simon did. It was his own glory. And we see this further in, in verses 10 and 11. It says they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. See, the people around Simon actually thought his power came from God. They attributed his power to God. Now remember, we're talking about Samaritans here. They were an heretical offshoot of Judaism. They weren't pagans, but they knew something about the true God, but what they knew was an error. Remember when, when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in John chapter 4? He told her, you Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. But we, Jerusalem, we Jews, we worship what we do know. So they had an errant view of God. But nonetheless, this is a, still a blasphemous view. They're attributing Simon's sorcery, which is explicitly condemned in Scripture. They are attributing it to God himself. Again, you see the evil here. The word translated in verse 11 is amazed, where it says they had amazed, he had amazed him, Simon amazed him with his magic. This could also be translated as bewitched or, or taken out of their right mind or made insane. And this is the result. This is the result of, of the use of knowledge or power apart from God. The knowledge ultimately bewitches others. It ultimately takes them out of the right mind because it moves them away from God. See, knowledge in and of itself may be factually accurate. It may actually be useful for practical benefits for others. But if the knowledge itself leads people away from God, if the knowledge itself reinforces this errant view of God, it ultimately hurts them. It ultimately takes them out of their right mind. A right mind is one that is in alignment with God, is in alignment with true reality, the true reality of God. And Simon's magic brought attention to himself, and it led to an errant view of God. And the focus was the greatness of Simon. It wasn't the greatness of God. It was the greatness of Simon. There's a big warning here. And this is a temptation we all face, even Christians, even Christian ministers, maybe especially Christian ministers and officers. Because there is, there is real power in the things of God. Think about it. As Christians, we have Scripture. We know about God. We know God. Because of our, our Christian worldview, we have a more accurate understanding of true reality than non-Christians do. And this understanding brings power. It brings real power. And there's a temptation to use this power, temptation to use our knowledge of Scripture, our knowledge of God, our knowledge of the things of God for our own glory. And what happens is we become like the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees loved to be called teachers. They, they craved respect. They crave what they, what they received, the respect, respect they received by the, the culture. And there, there are many, there are many who crave the, the respect of the office of an elder or deacon or teacher or pastor. And they want it for the outward glory rather than the inward call. And one of the signs of, of a true calling to these offices is really an understanding. I think all the officers of this church will, will recognize this. It's an, office, it's a, it's a understanding of the gravity of the office you're being called to and an understanding of our, our sense of unworthiness. We know that we are not worthy of this call. Remember my, my former pastor and, and mentor, Chris Hutchinson, when he first became a pastor, he made it a point of never seeking to, to preach. He was an associate pastor, and he would only go when he was asked or, or go to a conference. He never volunteered. He always waited to ask because he didn't trust his own ambition. He, he wanted to be ambitious. He, he, he was ready to go, but he trusted more the Holy Spirit. 
He knows the Holy Spirit wanted him. The Holy Spirit would, would uh, make that known to the others, and the others would invite him. And that's a, that's a really good safeguard. And ministers and officers and all Christians, we must always seek to deflect the attention off ourselves, and the attention must go where it belongs, to Christ. He must increase. We must decrease. And there's so much temptation for us to seek the glory. Now contrast Simon with Philip. Verse 12 tells us, Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. See, the content of Philip's message was not himself. Philip didn't preach Philip. Philip preached the gospel. Philip preached about the kingdom of God. Philip's message was Christ. The focus and the glory was on Christ. And the irony is, the irony is that we're actually the most useful and have the most impact, not when we amaze others and have others look at us and focus on us. We have the greatest impact when we point them to Christ. We're most useful when they forget about us and they see only Christ. The greatest person who ever lived according to Jesus. Who was the greatest person who ever lived according to Jesus, you know? It was John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, of those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. And I believe John's greatness is found in one verse. It is found in John 3.30, where John the Baptist says, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. It's kind of like what I, what I showed to kids about the binoculars. You know, binoculars that only show themselves are useless. The best binoculars are the ones that give us the clearest view of what we're looking at. And actually even better than that. Think of those binoculars, like if you, if you go up to, to, to Pike's Peak or something, and right at the base of Pike's Peak, they'll have these binoculars that are, that are mounted in the ground. They're only looking at one place. All you do, you can't move around, you can't look at birds, you can't look at the moon, you just see the mountain. Those are the type of binoculars we need to be. Not pointing at birds, not pointing at Pike's Peak, not pointing at anything else, but pointing only to Christ. These are the best binoculars. And we are the most effective witnesses for Christ when others don't even remember us. Right? That's the best one. All they remember is Christ. They forget he even told them about that. One of the greatest compliments I heard as a preacher is I heard someone quote something I said in a sermon and didn't even know that I said it. They said, I heard this, and they knew Christ better because of that. And they didn't even know that I, it was where it came from. So I get no glory at all. And look at the impact of Philip's witness in, in verse 12. Unlike the impact of Simon's witness, where people were amazed at who? They were amazed at Simon. The impact of Philip's witness is that they believed. That they believed. That was the impact. They weren't impressed with Philip. They believed. They were impressed with Christ. We come down to probably the most difficult verse in this passage. This is verse 13. And it says that even Simon believed. Now, Simon, like the men and women referenced in, in verse 12, they must have, have made some type of outward profession of faith since they're, since they're being baptized, since they're given the covenant signs, since they're, they're being brought into the church. But verse 13, I think, shows a little crack in, in Simon's faith. We, we get a hint of that, that Simon's faith was not really in Philip's message. It wasn't really about Christ, but rather it was in Philip's power. And we see this where he says, And seeing signs and great miracles performed, Simon was amazed. See, Simon was amazed not by the gospel, not by Christ. He was amazed by the great miracles. Literally here it says the works of power. He was amazed at the power. Simon's belief and faith are not in Christ. They are in the power. They are in the wrong object. They're not in Christ. They are 
in this power associated with Christ. And this is what he wanted. He didn't want Christ. He wanted the power. And here's where we need to take a hard look at ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, really, why am I here? Why am I here this morning? Why, why am I Christian? Is it because I've been regenerate? That God took me who is dead in my sins and made me alive to Christ? Is it because I am a new creation in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or is there some other reason? Is it the community? We, I love, we have good Christian community. That's great. Is it because I, I want to learn good Christian morals and, and learn to be a better person? That's great. You will learn that. Is it because my family comes here? Is it because I somehow want to be impressive? Well, I, I don't think that's really something about our church. It's not a really an impressive church. There's nothing about us that's impressive. I remember when, uh, when we lived in Virginia and, and Jessica and Sarah playing in a volleyball tournament, and we went to this one church in Roanoke, and this church had this big gym with a running track around it. They had a weight room. They had basketball courts. I mean, this thing was better than Planet Fitness. This was in the gym. And, and I could see people becoming, if you were a member of the church, you had full access to this gym. It seems like it's cheaper to join the church, be a member of the church, than to join a gym. So there was something, there was something external to Christ to join that church. But really, if there's any reason, any reason that you were here other than Christ, this is a problem. And we need to ask ourselves, is, there, is Christ enough? Is Christ all I want? Verses 14 to 17, these may be a little baffling. And I could actually preach a whole sermon on this. I'm not going to preach a sermon. 14 to 17 say, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For, they had not, for he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't, want, I don't want to spend too much on these because I'd go in a whole different direction. It'd be a whole different sermon. But really, the bottom line here is that because the gospel was moving, the gospel moved from Jerusalem now to Samaria. It's in a different area. Peter and John here are dispatched from the Jerusalem church to give their apostolic approval on this work. I mean, think about it. The church had now grown to several thousand people. And it would have been really easy for these people to start breaking off and forming splinter groups teaching something different from the apostles, starting to compete with, you know, competing forms of Christianity. And what the apostles do is they were sent to verify, to give their stamp of approval on this new Samaritan church. And when it speaks of the, the, them receiving the Holy Spirit, this is not implying that they were true believers, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Once they became a believer, they had the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 9 says, makes it clear that all believers have the Spirit. What we see being poured out here in, on the, the Samaritan believers is the miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the, the signs and wonders that were being done. And these were assigned to authenticate the gospel message. So these are the same signs and wonders that we saw done in Jerusalem, that authenticated the church in Jerusalem. And we see the same thing, the same Spirit being pulled out when the, when the Spirit moves on. We see this at the end of chapter 10 when the, the church is now expanding to include Gentiles. We see the Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles. But notice that these verses are vague on who actually receives the Spirit here. It simply says, they. Earlier we're told explicitly that Simon believed and that he was baptized. And here we're told explicitly that, that Simon received, or, or here we're not told explicitly that Simon received the Spirit. And I could be wrong, but I think Simon did not receive the Holy Spirit. Because I believe Simon was not indeed regenerate. 
And I think this fact is clearly evident by Simon's response in the next two verses. But again, he may be a believer. This may be the response of a believer, a very errant believer. But listen to these words. He says, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And here we see Simon's true colors. See, Simon saw God's, God's power flowing through the apostles, and he wanted that power. He didn't want God. He wanted that power. And Simon offers Peter and, and offers John money for this power. And from this verse comes a term that you may have heard of. It's called simony. And this was, there was a common pra- practice in the medieval church. And what, basically what it meant is, is buying ecclesiastical offices. So a person could, could uh, purchase the, the power to be a, a, a priest or an elder or a bishop in the church. And you may ask, why? Why would someone want to do that? Why would someone want to buy a, 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 an office? Well, there were certain benefits that came with these offices. Often they came with homes. They came with, they came with income. They came with control. If you were a bishop, you had control of a cathedral. And you also got income from the churches in your diocese. There was also respectability in the society. And these people who purchased, who practiced Simon, who, who, who purchased these, uh, uh, these offices, they weren't interested in serving God. They certainly weren't called from, by God to these positions. They were only interested in the benefits that came with the positions. They were just like Simon. And again, we need to ask ourselves, do I want the, the benefits of Christianity without wanting Christ? It's especially important here in the Bible Belt where, where being a Christian is almost expected of everyone. It's changing, but it's almost expected. Do we want the benefits? Do we want the respectability? Or do we want Christ? Verses 20 to 23 show us Peter's sharp rebuke of Simon. It's what Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And do you see how insulting this is to God? It's treating God as a servant. It's treating him as a hired hand. Worse than it's treating him as a prostitute. See, the gift of salvation, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling with us as believers, this gift is beyond money. It is of infinite worth. As, as we sung in one of the hymns, where the whole realm of nature mine, it would be a present far, far too small. So how insulting. How insulting is Simon? He thinks a, a few silver coins could purchase such a precious gift. But it goes beyond this, even this. I think here we, we really see the abomination, just to see such abomination is, of not just attempting to purchase God's favor, but really of any form of works righteousness. And what's works righteousness? Works righteousness is, is an attempt when I do something good, I could do something for God that will earn my standing with God, that will earn God's favor. And my friends, Works righteousness is the foundational sin of the human race. Even Christians, even people in the church are tempted, are drawn. That's our natural de- tendency. We would naturally get drawn into works righteousness. We see it all the time. And it creeps into the church all the time. We see most of the errors we see in the church are works righteousness at their base. It creeps into every aspect of our religion. We say, if I pray enough, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I'm holy enough, if I give enough money, if I serve enough, if I'm a good person, then I earn my salvation. Then I deserve God's favor. And do you see just how ludicrous this is? There's absolutely nothing, nothing that we can give God. There's nothing that we can give God that would somehow make him owe us 
He created the entire universe. He owns it all. What can we give him? My friends, the only way we can have a relation with God is if he initiates it. It's all of grace. All we do, all we do is, is to stand there, our hands open, and we receive this grace by faith. Peter continues in verse 21. He says, you neither have part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. I mean, I love this. Peter could not be any more clear. See, Simon's attitude here is diametrically opposed to the gospel of grace. And Peter tells him. Simon is opposed to God. Simon is under judgment. And notice that this is an unambiguous rebuke. See, Peter will do Simon no good. Peter does no good to, to those around him if he is anything but crystal clear on this point, crystal clear on this sin. And my friends, we too have to be just as clear today. We must call those who, who seek to use God as a means to an end. We must call them out. Whether it's an end is sobriety or respectability or, or better relationship or our best life now, it is all sinful. God is never to be used as a means to an end. And we must also call out any attempt, any attempt that we see to earn God's favor, either through our actions or through our money. This is sinful. And both of these sins, both of these sins are so common in our society and in the church. And these sins are diametrically opposed to the gospel of grace. And failure for us to speak clearly on this, it gives people false assurance. It's leading people to hell. They're thinking something I do has earned my salvation. And here's where, here's where it gets difficult. This is, and this is, this is something we all do. We all believe that, that we're faithful. If, if we're faithful, God will, will give us what we want. That all will go well. That he'll, that he'll answer our prayers we want a guarantee. We want a guarantee. And we do have a guarantee. But it's not based on us. It's not based on us. It's not based on our earning it. It's not based on doing something, uh, something worthwhile to, to have God owe us. You know what our guarantee is? Our guarantee is his promise. He gives us our promise. He gives us a promise. If you are in Christ, you have all things. All things will work together for good. If you have Christ, he will, you will, have, you will ha go to heaven. My friends, it would be unjust. It would be unjust for God to send a Christian to hell because Christ had already paid the penalty. God would have to cease being God to send a Christian to hell. That is where our security is. Do you see how, how worthless our, our works are to depend on our works? It's Christ. Our trust has to be in him, not in ourselves. We must despair of ourselves and rest only on Christ, only on his promises, only the promises he gives us in his word, Christ alone is our security. So what is our answer when we find ourselves, as we all do, looking to, to God as a means to an end? Or looking to place God in, or looking to, to creep into works righteous? What is our answer? What is our hope? What is our application? Our application is the same that Peter gave to Simon in verse 22. Repent. Repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness. And recognize it is wickedness. And pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of our heart may be forgiven us. My friends, if we repent, it's not only possible, it's guaranteed. It's guaranteed that we will be restored. If Simon repented, and we don't know if he did or not, he would be restored. So did Simon repent? Well, we really have no indication in Scripture that he did. The, the testimony of, of church tradition, which is not fallible, 
but it says that he did not repent. But even verse 24 seems to show that Simon is still has the wrong view. Look at Simon 24. And Simon answered Peter, said, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said to me may come upon me. And notice that Simon's not repenting. Notice that Simon's not falling on his face and begging the Lord for forgiveness, recognizing the evil of what he's done. In fact, Peter doesn't even speak to the Lord at all. I'm sorry, Simon doesn't even speak to the Lord at all. He goes to Peter. He asks Peter to pray for him. Simon doesn't pray. And I think this indicates Simon doesn't pray because Simon doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. He asked Peter to pray. And here's where, where I think it's going to get even more difficult. See, Simon's concern here doesn't seem to really be any about his sin at all. It's not about his concern, not at all about the great insult that he has uh, had against the Lord, the great offense against a holy God. His concern only seems to be the judgment, the judgment that he will face. He simply wants to escape the consequences that Peter proclaims. To use the vernacular, put it in today's language, Simon's only interested in fire insurance. How many of you are only interested in fire insurance? You know what fire insurance is. It says, give me just enough Jesus to keep me from going to hell, but not an ounce more. Not an ounce more that's going to, that's going to affect my fun. Just give me enough to get me from going to hell. And what this is, is this is an indication of a heart that is not right with God. If you ask that question, it's an indication that you are not right with God. But sadly, this is the attitude of many, many who consider themselves Christians. Many in our churches. Maybe even some sitting in this room this morning. And this may be a surprise to you. And I think this goes against what we hear in, in Bible Belt evangelism. You know, if you accept Jesus only so that you're not going to go to hell, only for, for fire insurance... What you're doing is you're using God as a means to a higher end. And I hate to break this to you. Contrary to what we'll hear in many evangelical churches, it's not about us. It's not about our salvation. Our salvation is not God's highest end. God's glory. God's glory alone is the highest end. And my friends, we must repent. We must pray for, for God to change our hearts. We must pray for God to remove the idols that we place before him. And you know what? He's faithful. He is faithful. He will answer this prayer. And when we do this, when we put God before everything else, then, and only then, will we experience true joy. Will we experience true peace. See, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And when we're glorifying God, we will enjoy him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do repent. I know I repent. Lord, there are many things that we seek to use you for. And these are good things. And these are things that you give to us. But Father, I pray for everyone who can hear my voice. I pray for myself that you will be our highest end. That we will say that if we have Christ, we have everything. We need nothing else. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Father, give us that heart. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.